You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 38 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today is a very special episode because we have a guest joining us later after the news. We will head over to that interview where we will be joined by our friend and paleobotanist Ali Baumgartner to talk about today's subject, grass. Yeah, it's an unusual addition to our podcast so far. Yes, to our very (laughs) animal-focused podcast. (laughs) We've been talking for a long time about maybe doing a plants episode. We have expressed in the past that we are terrified of plants, so we would have to bring on an expert to join us. <laughs> if, if we were superheroes, Poison Ivy would be our archvillain. <laughs> <laughs> Grass is a, a super fascinating group of plants. We are going to talk with Ali about uh, the history of grass, the evolutionary history, what makes grass unique, how you look at grass fossils, and things like that, and how grass has quite literally shaped the biomes of the planet. This episode was requested kind of by Allie herself. Allie has been (laughs) offering for a long, long time to do an episode with us on plants. Very, very casually suggesting. (laughs) Yes. And also, grass was requested after we started planning this episode. We got a request for grass uh, from one of our patrons, Lydia, on Patreon. So... Good choice. Here you yep. go. Good timing. Indeed. <laughs> so the interview with Allie will be coming up after the news. But first, some announcements. It is July, and July is a very special month. Will, do you know why July is a special month? I was born in July. You remembered. I, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I meant. You and Harry Potter. <laughs> yes. July is very exciting because it is one of the rare examples of a month where we will be releasing three episodes. Yeah. Because there are three weekends that pop up on our schedule. Yeah. Like a blue moon. It's It's actually exactly like a blue moon. Yes, it is. It's it's fun because that's... I remember July, not just because of my birthday, but that also happens with my paychecks from time to time on July. So, hey. But yeah, and this is why we don't say our podcast way. releases bi-monthly. Yes. Because it doesn't. It releases fortnightly. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that, that realization was one of the first reasons we had to buy a subscription. Because <laughs> we realized that. Yeah, because we had to a mm. certain upload amount. Yep. <laughs> on Podbean. <laughs> July is also exciting because as with every month, the episodes of the podcast are brought to you in large part, larger than ever, from the donations from our patrons. And speaking of patrons, (laughs) one of the benefits you can accrue on Patreon, in addition to hearing bonus audios and seeing behind the scenes pictures and stuff like that, is if you subscribe at a high enough level, we will shout your name out on the podcast. And we would like to welcome four new patrons... Four. Jacob, Jason, Chris, and Johnny, all of whom have joined very recently. Welcome. So all thanks, of you. fellas. Like, geez. That's incredible. And with those four new patrons, our Patreon has officially broken the one hundred dollar a month level. Yeah. Thanks, so, guys. Oh <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. Expect it's, some cool new stuff coming up. It's so exciting. I it 
we we were freaking out all day that it capped over it that's amazing it's great while we're on the subject of new stuff uh just a quick reminder our patrons and our non-patron listeners anyone who listens to us if there's stuff that we do that you like, let us know. We just finished the June Jurassic series, mm-hmm. uh, which you will be able to hear all five parts. If you like stuff like that, let us know and we'll keep doing it. But for now, one thing that we always do at the beginning of every episode is we pick some news that has caught our attention from the world of paleontology and related subjects. So before we talk grass, let's talk news. Will! Yarp. I have a news source that uh, goes back again to reefs because there's been reef news <laughs> the last few times. There and I'm, has. I'm enjoying this trend. <laughs> it's <laughs> Will fun. the ocean guy. I know. It's this That was not planned. I started working at an aquarium and it just fit. And it's actually been a lot of fun <laughs> being the ocean guy. I never would have thought. I have a f- news. I have found a news source about a platypus-like fish an odd-nosed fish found in an ancient reef that shows that even 400 million years ago, reefs were still a source of high biodiversity. Very cool. Yeah. This is kind of a a little bit of new research that shows some cool observations, and it is done by Benedict King et al., published in the Royal Society Open Science uh, Journal. And the conversa- it's the conversation article that I'm reading by Benedict King. This paper is covering a specific fish fossil, but found in ancient reef material that's off the coast of Lake Burnjuk or Burnjuk. I don't know how you would pronounce it in New South Wales. There, there's this reef from the Devonian, which is from about 419... 358 million years ago. This reef uh, consisted of not modern corals, but tabulate corals, which if you go back to the reefs episode, we covered there, but these are the extinct. Episode 36. Yes. <laughs> I, we need that little star in the bottom, like on the comic book series. Episode 30, please see episode 36. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> uh, these are the extinct group of corals with horizontal internal structure. Yeah. But it was also built by stromatoporoids, which are ancient sponges that also could build or at least add on to reefs. And they were sponges with a calcareous skeleton, some of which could get up to five meters in diameter, big mound-like structures. Oh, yeah. Big. Still reef and occupied by many varieties of fish, but mostly placoderms and lungfish. Placoderms Mm -hmm. being the armored fish, which we also discussed in an earlier episode. Episode 29. Now, one of these placoderms is the focus of this study, a very strange shaped fish with a flat, long snout named Brindabel aspis stensoi. And this fish has been researched before, but some new specimens that have been unearthed since those earlier studies as well as the older specimens, have been looked at in more detail in this publication and unveiled some interesting things about their head and face. This is a weird fish. Like I said, long, flat snout. They describe it very platypus-y, not only in its appearance, but possibly in its function. When you Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a very weird fish. When you look at the face, the things that stand out, eyes are on top of the head, so mm-hmm. facing upwards, 
Nostrils also on top, actually nestled within the front of the orbit, so the opening where the eye would be. Oh, weird. In that, so there's not a second pair of holes for the nostrils. It's just in the same hole. And then there's a line. There's this kind of like branched little forked line on the top of the nose that's actually part of the lateral line. The lateral line, everyone, is a organ that just about all fish have that is a pressure-sensitive organ that runs down the length of a fish body and often arches around their face to sense mm-hmm. movement in the water. It's like radar or sonar, but it's just taking on impact. So it kind of works like our ears. Yeah, they can sense the flow of... It's like when you, if you hear, like, you know, in movies and stuff, when martial artists are like, I can feel the movement yes. of the wind. Yes, exactly. It's like that, but actual, you know, the movement of the water and I all mean, fish can do it. It very much functions like our ears where sound puts pressure waves through the air and our ears pick it up. When a fish mm-hmm. moves in the water, it puts pressure waves through the water and this lateral line can pick it up. It also lets them tell the environment around them. That's why most yes. fish can navigate in the dark or while asleep because they're sensing the water bouncing off stuff. It's a really cool organ. And this organ on this fish continued onto the top of the face, which is not found in any other vertebrate. Interesting. So an extra sensory face, it seems. And the CT scans that the research team did show that this continues inside. There's a bundle of spaces for nerves and sensory organs, very complex structure on the inside of the snout, meaning that it very likely had a very sensitive nose and the upward facing eyes suggest a bottom feeder. So they're interpreting this as a fish that would go along the bottom of the reef and use its sensitive nose to root out hidden prey, very much like a platypus uses its snout. So it's not just in looks, but possibly in function that it was resembling this. That's very cool. I like the I like the, the comparison to a platypus because it immediately gets across the idea that this is a strange animal. Yep. And I love the idea of discovering a strange animal in an ancient reef. Yes. Because of course you would discover a strange animal in an ancient reef. Because reefs, as we discussed, are centers of biodiversity. There's a lot of niches to exploit, and so you get a lot of variety. Absolutely. And that's one of the big take-homes that the researchers point out for this this new study is that not only does this show that this was a very specialized fish that probably had a very unique lifestyle that it was filling, but it and the other 70 known species from this fossil reef deposit of fish and uh, a marine organism show that reefs have always been huge spots for diversity and, and specialization of the animals there. And what this kind of points out, they make the point that the way reefs have functioned in the ecosystem has not really changed just what is making the reef and what's living in the reef has shifted through extinctions in time. But reefs have always been major hotspots for animals to diversify and specialize, which is cool. Very good stuff. Yeah. Speaking of things we talked about in recent episodes, last episode, episode 37, we talked about birds. Here's some news about birds. More particularly, news about all dinosaurs and their relatives, specifically their tongues. Hey! This is a study that investigates how various dinosaurs and archosaurs could have used their tongues. We don't hear about that often. No, you don't. This is a new study by Ji-Hung Lee et al. in PLOS One, and there is an article that I'm reading on National Geographic by Teresa Makamer. Maybe that's how you pronounce that. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) 
What this study did was looked at the hyoid bone. So the hyoid bone is this, this bone or a series of bones that often you get in your throat. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of animals have these, and in many cases, they serve to anchor or stabilize the tongue. This study compared the hyoid structure in a bunch of living animals, in birds and alligators, and in extinct dinosaurs and pterosaurs, and perhaps a few other things, uh, and some extinct birds as well, things like that. The hyoid bone in, for example, alligators is short and simple, and it tends to just kind of hold the tongue in place. And in animals like that, the tongue is doesn't move very much. It kind of just sits there. You know, it's, alligators aren't like waggling their tongues around. It's rooted to the bottom of the mouth. Exactly. In some animals, the hyoid is very diverse because it's got a lot of function. In lizards, for example, lizards have very diverse tongues and very diverse hyoid bones. Partially because their hyoid bone is also serving a respiratory function. They do something called buccal pumping, where they're, it, that's helping to pump air in and out of the respiratory tract. Archosaurs, the big group that includes the croc line and the dinosaur line, appear to have lost this. They don't do that. And when these researchers looked at many extinct archosaurs, particularly dinosaurs, they found similar short, simple hyoid bones. So most dinosaurs appear to have had short, simple hyoid bones, which suggests that they probably had alligator-like tongues. Which makes sense. So when you watch Jurassic Park, and the dinosaurs are like sticking their tongues out <laughs> and licking people's faces, maybe they weren't doing that. They appear to have had sort of, that, that we, we would, might expect them to have those simple rooted to the bottom of the mouth tongues like gators do. Cool. However, two groups of archosaurs had very complex hyoid bones, birds and pterosaurs. Modern day birds have very, very complicated, complex, varied hyoid bones. They have more bones in their hyoid apparatus in many cases. And modern day birds have very variable tongues for all sorts of different purposes. Extinct birds seem to have had this. Some of the dinosaurs close to birds seem to have had a little bit of exaggeration in the hyoid bones. And pterosaurs had more complicated hyoid bones. And this is really interesting because it suggests that a more active tongue might for some reason be connected with flight. Interesting. There are a few other dinosaurs that were shown to have more complex hyoid bones that might be linked to chewing grass or other plants might be linked to food manipulate, right? We use our tongues to move food around. Yeah, rolling it around in your mouth. A gator doesn't do that. Nah. A gator grabs it, swallows it. <laughs> but like triceratops might have used a bit more of tongue movement. So there might be some correlation to diet. So the researchers suggest that maybe they're the more variable diet of flying animals. Once you start flying, you'd live all sorts of new lifestyles. So maybe that's part of why their tongues... Uh, appear to be more complex. The other thing that they pointed out is that being able to fly, you have converted your front arms to wings, which means you can no longer use your hands to help manipulate food. That's that's what I was thinking is that it was it was to help them manipulate, especially also with the addition of the beak and and yes. having a, a different face like that. Interesting. Yeah, they also pointed out that 
other archosaurs, particularly dinosaurs, seem to diversify their teeth, whereas birds, especially modern birds, seem to have diversified their tongues. That's so weird. Yeah, so it, I guess they, they it, maybe if that's the case, they have to make up for not having any variation in their teeth because they don't have any teeth mm-hmm. with having tongues that do all sorts of different functions. That's fascinating. And it's it's the complex and, and suggestion of a, a mobile tongue being helpful if you're flying or have a beak or don't have hands, whatever the, the issue is, is cool. It's also really neat to think about certain dinosaurs having alligator-like tongues one, it makes sense if you're if T Rex is just picking things up with its mouth, crushing it and pulling it apart and swallowing it. You're not chewing it. You don't need a tongue. Yeah. But also, alligators use their tongue in interesting ways. That's what lets them hold babies in their mouth. They can relax that bottom of their mouth and bring it into a pouch and and let it distend down because it's got that tongue muscle along the bottom. So it's, very interesting. So it's like maybe they're doing weird stuff with it. That'd be cool. <laughs> who knows t-rex uh what you're saying is t-rex carried ba- baby alligators in its mouth yes it did what clearly if someone doesn't give me fan art of that right now <laughs> if i don't get fan paleo art of that right now i'll be very sad because that's the cutest thing I've, i think i've ever heard so my next bit of news actually branches uh away from to to a group that one of our other friends one of our our earliest guests argued was the best group the primates episode seven and deals with an ancient gibbon not so ancient only a couple thousand years old from china that might shine new light on our effects on our fellow apes interesting this is research done by samuel turvey et al in science and the article is from smithsonian.com by jason daly so the story of this research actually starts in a very interesting way. Before we talk about the discovery of this fossil, I wanted to talk about how the researcher discovered it. While visiting a museum in China, just on vacation, Samuel Turvey noticed this gibbon skull in the display. And that was where he found out that the gibbon skull had been found within a tomb of Lady Xia, the grandmother of China's first emperor, so huh. yeah pretty important pretty lady important lady in her tomb she had a number of animals entombed with her and they're cranes a leopard a bear oh my and this gibbon or at least the front of a gibbon skull the gibbon was preserved and taken to this museum where our researcher discovered it and noticed it was a little weird being a gibbon expert was able to see that there was something odd about it came back with more researchers and asked the museum to be able to study it. They said yes. He, they went back, measured the skull, measured 477 other skulls. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and like 700-something <laughs> teeth out of all of those skulls and found that it was different enough to not only be denoted as a new species, but a new genus. Cool. Yeah. Junzi imperialis is the name of this new gibbon that given by this research they were not able to do dna sample they said that would that would really kind of cinch it but it's a very fragile specimen the museum said no 
you can't yeah, take DNA it. DNA sampling is by its nature destructive. It is at least a little bit. It is. So go back to episode thirty four. <laughs> it's gonna be a, a synopsis. This is this is like that before <laughs> the season finale episode that shows do. This is the crossover episode. Where it's yeah. like, oh man, do you remember back when we? And it's just clips from previous episodes before we have the big fight because we had to have twelve episodes, not eleven. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, what were they called? What was the um? Oh, the Ember Island players. The Ember Island players. Yeah, it's the Ember Island players episode. <laughs> we should totally have have someone else come on to be each of us and do their yes. wacky impressions. Did Will just die? It was very unclear. It was very unclear. Now, the interesting thing about this gibbon is, according to the specimen, it would be an extinct species since it's a new one cool. that has not yet been found alive. And other historical documents, it is suggested that since the tomb is 2,200 years old, the gibbons were at least in China that far back. And it disappeared from that region of China at least 300 years ago. As recently as just 300 years ago. So, if this is true, this actually makes a very interesting case for our relationship with apes. Because... Before now, there had not been a documented species of ape that had been driven to extinction by humans. Oh. Plenty aren't doing well. I don't want yeah. to make it sound like we have, yeah. we have made peace with our ape brethren. No. <laughs> no. No. They haven't gone extinct yet. They have not gone extinct yet. But so far, none had been pushed to extinction throughout our history, or at least recorded history, that we had ever seen. If this gibbon is a new species, and if the dates that the records show are accurate, it would most likely be due to the deforestation for agriculture that happened during that time. This could possibly be the first ape that went extinct due to human activity and breaks that that trend, that record that we had held up till now. Interesting. Yeah, so it'd be, it'd be a retroactive <laughs> a loss of this status of no human-caused ape extinctions. It's interesting to consider the fact that, you know, we've known gibbon, we've known about gibbons for a long time, but that there could have been a whole other species or genus, you said. Yes. Even that no one ever looked close enough to determine was different enough to be called something other than a gibbon or that it had a regional name that nobody ever realized was more than just a regional difference. Mm -hmm. And we were only able to discover it with the knowledge we have now after it's gone. Yeah. It's a very it's it's this if ever the saying hindsight is 2020, this is the time to use it. Indeed. The interesting caveat to this though is that some scientists have pointed out that it is not closed the book is not closed on this being a new species yet because they point out if this being in the tomb of a uh relative of the emperor, mhm, mm if this was a pet a captive either bred or kept given some of these differences in the skull shape could be develop developmental deformities from being right, right. kept in human care from being overfed from being bred as a pet who knows so so far we have the front of a skull yes but it there's a lot of interesting things being brought up by the skull very interesting time will tell yes my second bit of news, much to my chagrin, 
<laughs> is also about primates. <laughs> nah, primates are pretty cool, Ethan. So this bit <laughs> of news is about the evolution of claws and nails in primates. Oh, that's cool. And new evidence from the fossil record that gives us a clue to how and when we developed our iconic nails that we have today. Neat. This is a study by Doug Boyer et al. in the Journal of Human Evolution. And there was an article on Berkeley News by Robert Sanders, which we'll post with all the other write-ups on the blog post. Primates today, many of the, quote, advanced, which is to say similar to us, <laughs> familiar to us primates, most of the monkeys and apes, have flat nails on their fingers and toes, right? This is what we have, and this is something we share with, with other apes and other monkeys. Many other primates, like lemurs and lorises and galagos and such, have nails, but also have a special structure called a grooming claw. This is this narrow, tapering nail, usually on the second toe. When exactly the grooming claw came and went has kind of been this open question. Obviously, this is an important structure. These animals use the grooming claw. It's a specially developed, it's a comb, basically. Yes. They have a comb on their foot that they use to clear lice and ticks and whatever else out of their fur. Now we have, based on this study, evidence of ancient grooming claws, which give us clues to when and where this showed up. This study finds, uh, by looking at the distal phalanx, that is to say the last bone in the fingers and toes of extinct primates. Tips. The tips, the, the, the last bone. The shape of the bone will be affected by what kind of nail or claw was on top of it. So if you had a flat nail like we do, or if you had the, that big grooming claw like some other primates do, it affects the shape of that bone. Makes so sense. by looking at these tiny little bones, right, these microvertebrate fossils, <laughs> these researchers were able to identify the evidence of grooming claws in five different extinct genera of haplorine primates. Four of them are closely related to tarsiers, and the fifth one is a primate called Teilhardina, which is, as of right now, the oldest known U-primate. This is one of the oldest primates and the oldest known primate of the group that includes most primates today. Teilhardina comes from the Eocene more than 50 million years ago. This is interesting because it suggests two things. One, that the grooming claw is not something new. This is something that goes back a long, long time and might have been just a thing that early primates had. Cool. Maybe it wasn't something that certain groups evolved, but that primates had this and some groups lost it, which suggests that anthropoids, right, monkeys and apes like us, lost the grooming claw more recently than we had suspected, which raises the question of why would you lose this super useful tool? And one of the suggestions that has been put forth is that the grooming claw may have gone away when social behavior increased. That's what I was thinking. Yup. Because if you have friends to pick the ticks out of your fur, you don't need a grooming claw for it. Who needs a grooming claw when you got friends like you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. And this is not a new thing in paleontology, but the idea of physical change due to social change is really yeah. cool. Like that's 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 a very extreme thing that you don't 
think about very often is, oh, no, they started acting different, so then their bodies changed. That's cool. Well, I think I feel like I think about that a lot with big thing like sexual yes display thing like antlers and horns and stuff like that. I don't typically imagine social behavior having such a, a an effect on other functional parts of the body. Yeah, things that that are good for health and survival. Yeah, man, to think we could have had a little comb on our on our pinky or on our to, you know pinky toe or you know just to just scratch ourselves with. Missed, nice. missed opportunities. Thanks a lot, ancestors. <laughs> Maybe don't be so friendly next time. <laughs> I don't have any friends. Where's my grooming? <laughs> if I stop hanging out with people, can I get one? <laughs> can I regress? Well, that is all of the news for today, which means it is time for us to head on over to our interview conversation recorded earlier with our friend Allie to talk about grass. Hi, Allie. Hi, David. Welcome. Welcome to the Common Descent Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode. I'm so excited to be here. We are very excited to have you. For the benefit of our listeners, would you mind to introduce yourself? Who Who is this woman that is speaking with us? This stranger that you allowed on your podcast. Uh, my yes. name is uh, My name is Allie Baumgartner. I am, I guess you could call me a paleobotanist. I do pa- uh, paleobotany and some modern botany. Uh, I got my bachelor's from the University of Michigan in um, environmental science. I got my master's with these wonderful gentleman at East Tennessee State. Um, Mine was in biology. And now I'm at Baylor University working on a PhD in geology. Collecting the whole set. Yes, you're covering (laughs) the whole paleo smorgasbord. Well, you are here today, and we're delighted to have you, to tell us about grass, a subject that we certainly couldn't (laughs) speak about with any authority. Nah. So let's dive right in, if you wouldn't mind, to start us off by answering the a question for the ages. What is grass? What makes a plant a grass? So luckily, that's, that is a very easy and a very difficult question. Um, most people have a pretty good idea of what a grass is. If you look outside, you know the difference between a grass and like a tree or something like that. But more specifically, a grass is part of a group known as the graminoids, which is a fancy word that just means grass. And they are herbaceous, monocotyledonous angiosperms um, and tend to have an intercalary meristem. So lots of big words. I will define (laughs) all of them. (laughs) So herbaceous just means that it's not woody. So that's okay. going to be weeds. Um, so, for example, most monocots, which I'm going to define in a second. Um, so, like corn and tulips and dandelions and things like that. Those are all herbaceous. So basically, if it's not a tree, it's herbaceous, broadly speaking. They're monocotyledonous. So monocots are a group of plants. Basically, all that it means is that it's little baby leaves 
it has one little baby leaf as opposed to two little baby leaves. So there are monocots and there are dicots. So monocots, one baby leaf, dicots, two baby leaves. And that's leaf. when it's sprouting from the seed, whether it has the two yes. classic you know, picture that people think of or that one little just sprout. Exactly. And um, monocots, if you look at their leaves, tend to have parallel venation. So the veins of the leaf tend to be parallel to each other. If you think about like corn or tulips or things like that, they have these parallel veins in the leaves. Um, and those are monocots. If they, if they have a network of veins, they're normally not. And then they're angiosperms. So angiosperms are flowering plants. So they are not conifers. They're not pines. They're not ferns. They're not mosses. So that's basically most of the plants that you're probably familiar with are going to be angiosperms. So like, you know, most of the trees that you see, all of the grasses, the shrubs, anything with a flower is a flowering plant. Yeah, so that's those. That's basically the broad strokes, the basics. Um, I also mentioned that they have an intercalary meristem. So a meristem is where plants grow from. So if you think about if you think about a plant, so they have apical meristems which are at the top, and they have shoot apical meristems at the top and root apical meristems at the bottom. So if you think about a plant, it's basically growing straight up and straight down. Some plants also have centers of growth in other places. So grasses tend to have nodes, so tend to have like rough bits. If you think about bamboo, how it has those ridges on it, each one of those ridges is another place that the, the bamboo can grow from, which is part of the reason that it can grow so fast. It's basically just giving itself another center of growth. So when you say grow from, it's like another platform. Yes. Like a, and it continues pushing upwards from that spot. Yeah. It's like a save point. Um, so you get to this level. Okay, cool. Now we can get to the next level. <laughs> a lot of grasses, because they grow from these nodes, um, you can actually cut them down. That's why if you cut your grass too short, it grows faster. Um, because a lot of grasses have a meristem, so the part that it's growing from, at the base of the leaves. And so if you cut the grass short, the sun can get to the leaves and it grows faster. So if you let your lawn grow a little bit longer, it shades out the meristem and it can't grow as fast. Huh. Interesting. That is yeah. good to know. <laughs> yeah, so if, if you want your grass <laughs> to grow more slowly, let it grow a little bit longer. Pro tip. <laughs> to give you guys an, an idea of what I'm talking about when I talk about grasses, to give you real examples. So basically, most agricultural crops. So if you think about like corn and wheat and rice and things, barley, oats, things like that. Right, right. Those are all grasses. And then bamboo. And then, you know, the thing that makes up your lawn. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about grasses. Now, I understand that grasses do do the photosynthesis thing in a, in a particular way. Yes. So a little bit of background talking about the photosynthesis. There are actually three types of photosynthesis, and, and uh, grass can do two of them. I'm going to go through the basics of photosynthesis because I imagine that you guys have not thought about this in many Many years. <laughs> Not since I memorized in an undergrad. I've since forgotten it. Yeah. 
Exactly. You, you memorized the steps. Yeah, you memorized <laughs> the steps. You took an exam on it. <laughs> yes. And then it's gone. You filled it with useful information. So to, to oversimplify it, plants take in CO2 and they use water that they pull in from, from their, their roots. So they bring in CO2 in their leaves. They bring in water from their roots and they use that to make sugar. And then they release oxygen as a byproduct, which is why plants and humans, we got a good thing going like houseplants. If you breathe on your houseplant, it'll basically exhale for you. We got a good thing going. So the basic kind of photosynthesis where you just take in the CO2 and you get rid of the oxygen is called C3 photosynthesis. And the reason it's called that is because the first carbon that it makes or the first sugar that it makes has three carbons. So C3 it's a three carbon sugar. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Sure does. Scientists give things super obvious names and I appreciate <laughs> it. So the plants are bringing in the water through their roots. That's pretty straightforward. But the way that plants bring in CO2 is by these little tiny holes in their leaves called stomata. So leaves, if they if a plant needs CO2, it can open up its stomata. It will let in the CO2. It will let out the oxygen. But CO2 molecules are larger than water molecules. So they move in more slowly than water can move out. So when a plant opens up its stomata, it's going to lose a lot of water. So they have to find a nice balance between, uh-huh, they have to find a nice balance between bringing in that CO2 and not losing too much water. If you close your stomata, to keep the water in, then you run into another problem because the enzyme in the plant that um, attaches to the CO2 to create the sugar doesn't really like attaching to CO2. It would rather attach to oxygen, which does not make sugar and that is bad for the plant. So <laughs> you have to balance all these things. So one way that you can do that is to separate um, where the uh, photosynthesis happens from where CO2 comes in. So instead of just having the CO2 come in and then photosynthesis happen in that first layer of the leaf, they have this fancy anatomy where they move it. So they're separating it in space. So they're separating photosynthesis from the atmosphere in space. And this is less efficient most of the time, but if you have low levels of CO2, then this is far more efficient because it doesn't mess around with any of that oxygen stuff. It just cuts straight to the CO2. And then if you also can't give up your water, um, another way to do it is by closing your stomata during the day so that you can't release the, so you keep the water in and then opening them at night so that you can take the CO2 in. And that's separating it in time. You have two stages of photosynthesis, one during the day, one at night. So if you separate the photosynthesis in space, that is called C4 photosynthesis. Instead of making a, C, a three carbon sugar, it makes a four carbon sugar. Slightly different, still works the same to the plant, but it's more um, efficient if you have low water or if you have low CO2. The last one is, um, so if you're separating it in time, so you're if you're opening up your stomata at night and keeping them closed during the day so you don't dry out, that's what succulents do. And that's called CAM photosynthesis. So it stands for Crassulaceae Acid Metabolite 
metabolism. <laughs> um, it's because the Crassulacy family is one of the main ones that does it. So with the exception of Cam, the uh, most of these are not restricted to one group of plants. So C4 photosynthesis, which is the derived form, it's the second form, has evolved at least 31 times, <laughs> which is wow. kind of ridiculous to think of, right? <laughs> yeah, so plants have basically figured out a better way to conserve water in either environment with low water or an environment with low CO2 a whole bunch of times. <laughs> so is it like... Animal, different groups of animals have evolved different life strategies, like being herbivorous versus carnivorous. Two different ways of doing basically the same thing, getting fuel for your metabolism, yeah. evolved multiple times in different groups. Plants are C3 versus C4. Exactly. It's just, you find a, a method that works for you, and it, like it's they basically co-opted different parts um, to make it work. But yeah, it's the exact same thing. They just, this isn't working. Hey, he's better at this. Why don't we do it that way? <laughs> and the thing about it is that not all, not even all grasses do C3 or C3, C4. It's not even, there's, there's very little rhyme or reason to who's doing what in grasses. In general, C3 grasses are often called the cool season grasses and tend to be in cooler environments. Um, and then C4 are the warm season grasses. If you think about like, North America. So in the Great Plains, the northern grasslands of the Great Plains tend to be more C3 dominated, and the southern grasslands tend to be C4 dominated. And that's pretty that's pretty common. So if, where it's warmer and drier, so like Australia is super C4. <laughs> like they have very little C3, it is mostly C4. But you can have you can have both. Very interesting. So grasses are pretty diverse in their Obviously, where they live, grasses are everywhere, yes. but also in their strategies of living. Yes. Okay. So what 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 do we, can you give us a quick run through of like, what does grass diversity look like today? Modern grasses. The family of grasses is Poaceae, and it is one of the largest families of plants. That doesn't surprise There's me. There's just... I know, right? Well, it makes it makes perfect sense. It's so hard to imagine a world without grass, yeah. right? Because like any when you're a kid, any picture you ever draw, it starts with the blue of the sky and then the green of the grass. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's 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 very hard to think of a world without grass, I guess. And like I mentioned before, so basically anything agri agricultural, that's grass. Just every lawn, every most football fields, unless they're astroturf, um, things like that are going to be all grass. So today, like you mentioned, so grasses are found on every continent except for uh, except for Antarctica, mm -hmm. and they tend to be found in um, continental interiors. So if you think about like in North America, you have the grasslands through the center of North America. In South America, you have grasslands basically just south of the Amazon through the center of the continent. In Asia, in, in Eurasia, the center of the continent is grasslands. In Africa, most of the continent that's not rainforest <laughs> is grasslands. And most of the, uh, in most of the interior of Australia that is a desert is grasslands. So there, and there are two types of grasslands. I want to make that clear now. There are savannas 
and there are grasslands. They're 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 different. Um, so Savannah is tropical. So okay. it tends to have seasonal rainfall. So you're like a dry season and a wet season. If you like Africa, if you're thinking of a savanna, Africa is a good visual. Yep. Um, they tend to have more C4 grasses. You can find them in South America, Africa, India, and Australia. We don't really have true savanna in North America. And then grasslands are the temperate version of, of a savanna. Um, they tend to be semi-arid, so they tend to be really pretty dry. Um, you can have both C3 and C4 and like the uh, the balance of the two depends on the, the regional climate. So the cool season grasses, the C3 grasses tend to start growth early in the spring and then max out um, around 20 degrees C, 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's their best growing temperature. After that, they just kind of like die, not die off, but die back. And they don't they don't have new growth after that. Whereas the um, warm season grasses tend to start growing in the early summer, so they start growing a little bit later. Later, and they max out their growth at around thirty five degrees C or ninety five degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. So yeah, that gives you a good idea of like the really the the different climates that are going to be dominated by C three versus C four grasses and. And also, so savannas will have basically any type of soil associated with them. Um, grasslands have a particular soil associated them. So you could do a whole episode just talking about soil, but <laughs> hey, now, that's it's very important to. We'll, we'll take it under <laughs> advisement. <laughs> okay. You can tell Alan um, I know a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Um I I know a lot of people who who work on um fossil soils, but Absolutely. there's a particular uh, it's it's really cool. Um because there is a really strong relationship between soil and plants. Makes perfect sense. Yes, They're going to be influencing each other, but um there's a particular type of soil it's called a mollusol that you don't really see in the fossil record until grasses evolve and become widespread. Oh. So mollusols are um, super organic rich. That's why settlers came and did all their agriculture in the prairies <laughs> because they have really rich soil. Very so cool. yeah, it, it's, it's really cool. And like I said, there are um, grasslands in North America and in South America and Southern Africa and all over through Asia. Now, this is a side question, but when you talk about grasslands, right, I picture in my head the, the green, the kids drawing, you know, green lines. Yes. When you look at a savanna or a grassland, that's not all the same grass, is it? A no. Savanna, uh, and, like a grassland is many 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 types of grass i would imagine not many 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 actually surprisingly okay. i would have thought the same thing because if you think of like a forest you it's particularly like um like a like a rainforest so like if you think of a rainforest there are hundreds of species of even just trees right right but in grasslands and in savannas you tend to have a few groups, a few, not necessarily species, but at least like genera and maybe families that dominate. Most grasses don't form grasslands. Interesting. That is a very interesting point. Right. So if you think about like your lawn, some Kentucky bluegrass, that is never going to form grassland. <laughs> well, and like you said, agricultural, like barley and wheat and yeah. stuff like that aren't 
Don't exactly. see my grassland plants. Not, not really. I mean, we have modified them. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> but even still, a lot of them wouldn't necessarily make up what you would see in, in a grassland. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. makes sense once you, once you say it that, you know, of course not all grasses are the same or else we wouldn't care so much about what grass was in our lawn and exactly you know, that but it is, that is a good point that it, you know if you were to just leave a neighborhood alone it would not turn into a, a grassland or savanna well it uh it depends on where you are in <laughs> texas in texas um so i'm in eastern texas this was originally i think this is originally tall grass prairie so yeah if you did leave your lawn it might actually turn into a grassland that's pretty wow. great you get tall grass, no, then you have velociraptors. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Pokemon. <laughs> po- that Pokemon are found in the long grass. Exactly. That's you got to watch out. That's why you got to trim it back. Yep. <laughs> Who knows what's gonna move in? Exactly. Exactly. So, huge diversity of grasses today. Lots of different strategies, and they're incredibly important, right? Like yes. trees. They're they're everywhere. They're doing all sorts of cool stuff. But of course, we also like to talk about the past here. Now, do, what does a grass fossil look like? So the thing about grasses is that they're pretty flimsy, right? Right. So if you think about a grass, it's there's not much to it. I mean, we can you can mow your lawn, and it doesn't take you you know weeks to get through. It's right. much more difficult. <laughs> You don't it's, need a chainsaw much... to, to, to mow your lawn. <laughs> exactly. A child can pull grass out of the ground. Yes. But, so the downside to that is, um, you know, if you don't have that hard tissue, you're not going to get as much preservation in the fossil record. So you don't really find grass leaves so much. Um, sometimes you will. I, 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 like, I personally have found, I don't think they're, act- they're grasses per se, but they... Um, live in similar environments and I have found little tiny bits of their their leaves left behind. Okay, but like, like the blades. Like just imagine? tiny little blades, but yeah. So not enough to tell what it is, but enough like that's a plant. But you don't that's not common. You're not going to get that a lot. More often what's going to be preserved is going to be um pollen. Because as anyone with allergies knows, there's a lot of grass pollen. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, so, and pollen is one of the most, it's one of the strongest biological substances that we know of. It's really, really, really hard to destroy pollen. Interesting. Like, yeah. So I didn't know this until, uh, fairly recently. The process, cause I know palynologists, so these are the people who study pollen. <laughs> the process that they have to go through to be able to, um, get rid of the other stuff so that they can see pollen in a sample is ridiculous. They're using like really scary acids and it's breaking down all sorts of things, but not the pollen. The pollen Weird. is still left behind. Wow. Like lots of hydrofluoric acid, which HF is terrifying. <laughs> I never want to use it, but yeah, like, you know, hydrochloric isn't anywhere near enough. Like, the, the amount of processing that you have to do, like, you, you cannot destroy pollen, which means it's great in the fossil record. 
yeah. it's really tiny and tedious um, to actually go through because it's microscopic, but it's there's a great record for pollen. Another thing that's really common are phytoliths. So phytolith literally means plant rock. So a phytolith is, it's a bit of, I guess the super simplified way to describe it is plant sand. So it's uh, these silica grains, um, they're silicified plant tissue. They're very common in grasses. They're not exclusive to grasses, but they are these hard parts that are left behind even if the rest of the leaf is not. And like I said, they're, they're found in other plant groups, but there are some shapes of them that are really dis, uh, distinct and um, commonly associated with particular types of grasses. So even if you can't find like a leaf fossil, you can find pollen and uh, phytoliths. And if nothing else, like I mentioned before, you don't really see mollusols that soil type until you have grasslands. So even if you don't have the grass itself, if you have a mollusol, a fossil mollusol, then you know that you probably have grass there. So unfortunately we don't have like super charismatic fossils. It's just like, <laughs> I think that's a blade of grass or, you know, look at hundreds if not thousands of pollen grains. And like, I'm pretty sure these are, <laughs> these are grass. They're like the, the octopus of the plant fossil world. It's like yes, <laughs> the really, there. <laughs> really numerous, really important, cool things, and I'll leave good fossils. You might be able to find the hard parts that are inside them. Yeah, that's about beak. it. <laughs> yes, if only, if only grass had like a beak or something. I uh, would not go outside. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, those phytoliths, the the plant sand, that's a good that those like silicified chunks. Those are also the reason to bring it over to animals, because obviously uh, that's the reason that you see such differentiated teeth in plant in plant eating mammals, because grass is really tough. Grass because yes, it's mean. Eats away at your teeth. Yep. And so I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But there's actually another thing that you can learn from phytoliths. So there's this really cool research going on. It's so uh, Caroline Stromberg at the University of Washington and Reagan Dunn, who's at, I think the Smith, no, no, she's at uh, the Field Museum. She's at the Field Museum. So they use the shape of phytoliths to estimate canopy cover. Oh. Yeah. And basically, I, I can't remember the exact details of it, but basically how wiggly the edges of the phytolith are can give you a good, a good idea of how shady versus how sunny it is. That's awesome. Bizarre. I know. It's really, really cool. They worked on this in, um, like, I think Central America. So they did um, modern studies and then they did paleo proxies. And it's really cool because there's a, there's a pretty good a pretty good relationship with, between with, like, how wiggly the plant cells are and how sunny it is. That's really cool. That's a really cool proxy. Huh. I know, right? <laughs> so let's let's start talking about evolutionary history. This is something we like to do with our, our when we talk about a group of organisms and plants, though we overlook them a lot. In, in the case of grasses, quite literally, mm -hmm. have have an evolutionary history, just like the animals we talked about. Where do grasses come from? What what, what is the earliest fossil record of grasses look like? I feel, sometimes I feel like the Lorax. I have to speak for the, the plants. <laughs> I am the Paleo Lorax. So yeah, plants have a 
have a rich evolutionary history that has nothing to do with animals. And my advisor likes to joke that if you did, if you based the geologic time scale on plants instead of animals, it would look different because, you know, things that wiped out animals, like plants are like, no, I'm doing fine. So plants have literally changed the world. So plants are the reason that we have an oxygen atmosphere, even as plants have legitimately changed the world. So I feel like I got to speak for the plants a little bit. Like they're not just the background to the animals. <laughs> they are cool on their own. So grasses... Unfortunately, for the reasons that I mentioned, they're not very resilient. It's hard it's it's hard to find the earliest grass fossils. It's hard to find the earliest anything fossils. But we're fairly certain. So the the group angiosperms that, that grasses are a part of arose probably um sometime maybe in the the Jurassic, but they were they became very uh widespread in the Cretaceous. And we think that grasses did arise sometime in the Cretaceous. So even though a lot of people like to to get sort of pedantic about how you shouldn't have grass in your um, illustrations with dinosaurs, that might not entirely be the case. They probably weren't particularly common, but they were there. We think that they arose in Gondwana, what is now Australia. So I love Gondwana. Gondwana is the southern hemisphere. If you think about the supercontinent during much of the um, Mesozoic. So Gondwana, if you put South America back with Africa, and then you squish on Antarctica, India, Madagascar, Australia, bits of China, I believe, that's Gondwana. So all of my favorite things come from Gondwana. So grasses probably originated somewhere in Gondwana, probably in what is now Australia. Like I said, most of the early work comes from phytoliths and pollen. There is a really cool study that found phytoliths that they are pretty confident came from grasses in dinosaur coprolites in India. Nice. I think we actually mentioned that in our coprolites episode, in episode 30. That's exciting for a couple of reasons, because first of all, who doesn't love dinosaur poop? (laughs) Correct. And secondly, if it's showing up in the coprolite, that means that they were, it was probably not uncommon to eat. You know what I mean? If it is showing up enough in their system that we're seeing it in a preserved in a coprolite, it's probably not the only time this sauropod ate grasses. Right, right. And also, because it's from India... Sometime during the Mesozoic and into the early Cenozoic, India went walkies and just kind of like, whatever, forget you guys, I'm heading north. And so at this time, India was already separating from the other parts of Gondwana, which means that not only were there grasses, but they had, they were there before it split. So sometime before like 80 million years we have grasses in Gondwana. Okay, so we're talking 80 million years. We're, we're in the Cretaceous. This is the time yes. we've got, go back to our dinosaurs episode, horned dinosaurs. You've got your armored dinosaurs. This is towards the, getting towards the end of the, of the dinosaur age. Yes, so they are basically, you know, all of the dinosaurs that people are most familiar with 
There are sauropods that are chewing up on grass. There's also been grass pollen has been found from the late Cretaceous and the early Paleocene. So about uh, 70 to 60 million years. So about the the bad day around that time. <laughs> the grass pollen has basically only been found in South America, India, North Africa. These are Gondwanan places. So this is a lot of evidence to suggest that grasses started in Gondwana. Okay, so towards the end of the Cretaceous, toward the end of the Mesozoic era, we're seeing a diversity of grasses. They're not everywhere, but they're around, and they're still in the south, sort of yes. centered in the southern continents. Interesting. So that's into the Cretaceous, and then in the paleo in the Paleogene, so the Paleocene, the Eocene, and the Oligocene, that's when we begin to see the earliest macro fossils. So, like, that's a leaf, and you know that it is a grass. <laughs> oh. And we don't see those any earlier than the late Paleocene, so about 55 million years. So we've got a big gap of time before we see the first definitive macro fossils. Throughout the Eocene and the Oligocene, they become more common, but you don't see grasslands. There's just... There are grasses, but there are no grasslands. Right. So you're not seeing, you see the macro fossils, so visible, you know, not pollen, not, fly, yes. not micro things, are showing up in the Paleocene. So you you don't find like T-Rex bones alongside grass macro fossils. No, you don't find anything <laughs> right. like they, that. They're not showing up in the fossil record like that until after the dinosaurs, most of them, are gone and we've moved into the Cenozoic. That's why, uh, for the, a very long time, people thought that grasses didn't arise until sometime in the Cenozoic, because you don't see uh, macrofossils until then. It isn't until slightly more recently that we've um, gotten better at... There's been some work to do um, machine learning with pollen, specifically grass pollen, because it is so diverse. Um, that way we can... We might be able to push back the age. Who knows what we'll find in the future. But unfortunately, no leaves until the late Paleocene. And so the, the phytoliths that show up before that are definitely from some early kind of grass thing, but could have been looking very different from what we picture grasses today, potentially. Yes. And it's, it is it is probably a grass. But like I said, not grasses aren't the only thing that make phytoliths. So... Interesting. So basically, everything else is, we think it's a grass. <laughs> but once we get the uh, the macrofossil, we know it's a grass. Yes, right. yes. So in the Cretaceous, you see a lot of, uh, you, you've got hints of grass and grass accessories. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then once we get into the Cenozoic, right, the age of mammals has, you know, begins, and we start to see a little more. But there's still, as you said, you know, picturing T-Rex hunting Triceratops on a savanna is wrong. We don't have, the grasses are, are right. relatively minor parts of their ecosystems. Right. There might have been little pockets of grass. You know, this place is really nice for grass right here, but it's not going to be widespread for as far as the eye can see. That's not the right, case. Right, right. Would they would it be like, like cactuses? Like they have a place, you can find them if you know where to look for them, but they're not all over the place in every ecosystem. Yes. Um, I feel like cactus might not be the best analogy. <laughs> I don't have a, a lot of plants on the list in my head. <laughs> um, more like, um, what about like cattails? Okay. So yeah, cattails, 
Yeah, I, I'm a botanist. Um, so cattails are, you'll find them where you expect to find them. You'll find them in these very particular habitats. But like, I would not expect to find any cattails here. And I'm not going to see wide swaths of cattails. I would love that, but not going to happen. <laughs> that I think that's a really good comparison because it's, we've mentioned already the, the folly of drawing dinosaurs on African savannas. Uh, but it's such a clear image for us to think of large prey and predators, large herbivores and carnivores. Whenever you think big animals, your brain immediately either goes to like bison in the Midwest in the grasslands or elephants and giraffes and lions in the savannas of Africa. So it's it's really hard to break that image. Like when you said there are grasses, but there's not grasslands yet. That's That's a weird statement for most people because... You just think of grass being this thing that grows everywhere there's bare soil. Exactly. Grass is literally a weed. So yeah. we mm-hmm. expect it everywhere. And that, that wasn't the case. So that so so where we are in our timeline, the quick our quick run through of this timeline, through the Paleogene. And it's after that, as the Paleogene moves into the Neogene, as I understand it, that grass takes over the world. Yes. So the Paleogene period is giving way to the Neogene period. The Oligocene epoch is giving way to the Miocene epoch. And grass is doing something crazy. Allie, tell us please about the rise of grasslands. So in my opinion, the Neogene is the best time. (laughs) I am pro-Neogene. Uh, I did my master's research on the Miocene and Pliocene, so I'm a little biased, but objectively the best. So <laughs> during the uh, the Miocene, that's when we see an increase in plant fossils. And so that's macrofossils, so like the leaves we were seeing a few of before. These fossil soils, these mollusols, phytoliths, more phytoliths, um, and then there are actually some isotope studies of leaf waxes. So leaves will only develop a waxy coating if it's trying to um, preserve moisture. So in dry environments, you'll tend to see leaves that are a little bit waxier. If it's wet, you don't need to keep the water in. There's a lot of water. So leaf wax studies and also other isotope studies, you can, by looking at the carbon composition, you can figure out if a, if you're getting C3 or C4 photosynthesis. So wow. we're getting this, I know. So we're getting the same signal from a lot of different places. So we're, we're pretty confident that this is when we're beginning to see a big shift. So during the late Oligocene, so the end of the Paleogene, during the late Oligocene and early Miocene, So the continental interiors, so the middle of continents, these tend to be dominated by woodlands and savanna. So you're seeing some grasses, um, but you're still seeing trees. So it's not just grasses, there's also a lot of trees. But you're seeing this shift into a higher density of grasses. And during the middle Miocene, we see a change from these being C3 grasses to C4 grasses. The timing of this varies 
across the different continents. So it tends to be about the middle Miocene, but in some places it's a little bit earlier, in some places it's a little bit later. Um, in fact, Australia, which like I mentioned before, has the highest um, density of C4 grasses today, didn't have any C4 grasslands until the Pliocene, so about 3.5 million years ago. So the middle Miocene is about 16 to 12, somewhere in there. Australia is not getting these grass, these C4 grasslands until about 3.5 million years ago. And we're seeing this across the world. So we have this pattern in North America, South America, Eurasia, Africa, Australia. Everybody is seeing this increase in grasslands. Okay. So they've spread now, right? We're, early on, we said we we're in the southern continents. We are everywhere. Grass fever is taking over the world. Hay fever, if you Ex will. <laughs> exactly. So the first macro fossil, I should have mentioned this before. So the first macro fossil of grass is actually found in Tennessee. Oh. Um, in what West Tennessee, hey. the wrong end, but oh, right fine. state. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the first grass fossil at, from the end of the Paleocene is from Tennessee. So by the end of the Paleocene, grasses have made it out of Gondwana into the rest of the world. Okay, but it still took them half the Cenozoic to start this rise we're seeing exactly. in the Neogene. They slowly made themselves, you know, got in every little corner, and then boom, we're everywhere. Um, <laughs> All right. Yes, now, exactly. agents activate. Exactly. <laughs> and so the reason for this, this pattern is a couple of things. Primarily, it's related to changes in climate. So if you think about the Cenozoic, so after the dinosaurs go extinct, they have this really bad day, age of mammals, you have your highest temperatures in the early Paleogene, Paleocene. So basically right after the dinosaurs have gone extinct, it is warmest and wettest. And then as time goes and we get closer to the Pleistocene and into that ice age, temperatures are decreasing, 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 decreasing. We have a little bit of spikes um, where it gets very warm, but in general, we see this decreasing pattern. And um, we also see an increase in aridity. So it's drying out. It's getting cooler and drier. All across the world. All across the world. So um, most of the, a lot of the evidence for this is actually coming from seafloor foraminifera studies. So the nice thing about that is that so if you have these foraminifera, these forams, these studies, because they're coming from the oceans, they are a global, a global signal. So we know that everywhere is getting cooler and drier. So some places aren't drying out as much, some places aren't getting as cool, but in general, this is happening everywhere around the world. So like I said, it's a combination of cooling, but also drying. So if you think about, if you visualize where all of the continents are now, everybody's pretty distinct. So you have North America is mostly separate from South America, is separate from Australia, which is separate from Africa, and then you have Eurasia and, and, and Antarctica. Everybody is pretty much separated. During the Cretaceous, you have... Well, during the Mesozoic, you tend to have two land masses. You have the southern continents that are all stuck together and the northern continents that are all stuck together. And then somehow you have to get from point A to point B. And so through a lot of the Cenozoic, you have a, these land bridges. So most people are pretty familiar with the, the, the Bering Straits, the Bering Land Bridge. So that connected Asia to North America. 
but during a lot of the Cenozoic, you actually also had a land bridge that connected North America to Europe on the other side. So you have basically a ring of connected continents all around the Northern Hemisphere. And as these continents shift and as these land bridges break and reassemble, you're changing where the oceans are, how big they are, where the currents are. So you're going to be changing the amount of moisture that's available. And if you think about the shape of the continents, so if you think about the Northern Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere has very wide continents. The Southern Hemisphere has very narrow continents. So that's part of the reason why you tend to see more grasslands in like North America and in uh, Eurasia, because that's a long way for moisture to travel from the ocean into the middle of this honking huge continent. <laughs> so as you have these changes, you're getting, and you also have mountain building events. So India is doing whatever it's doing heading into Asia. You have in the Western North America, you have mountain building events. So we're changing the movement of moisture throughout the continent. We're making the middle of the continent drier. And most plants do not like dry. If you have ever had a house plant, um, if you ever killed it, it's probably because you didn't water it enough. <laughs> yeah, they don't like it when you don't do that. Yeah, they like water. They like that water stuff. Exactly. So it's the fact that you have these centers of these continents that are becoming drier. Trees, you know, if you think about how big a tree is, it takes a lot of water to keep that happy. Grasses in smaller, more her you know, herbaceous plants are going to be much better adapted to deal with, you know, this lack of this lack of moisture. So there's also changes in fire regime. This isn't true of all trees, but many trees don't like getting burned. Yes. You know, it's not great for trees. Fire That's not bad. true of all trees. Fire bad. <laughs> um, if you're made of wood, fire is bad. Yes. But like I mentioned before, uh, if you cut your um, if you cut grass really low, close to the base, it will actually grow back faster. If you burn off the leaves, you haven't necessarily burned off the growing bit. So it can still grow from that base if it hasn't been, you know, if the, if the roots haven't been burned away, it will still have a place to grow from. So what you're saying is everything changed the day the fire regime changed. <laughs> 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 Well done. But, but yeah, it took us a long like, time to get an Avatar reference here on the podcast, but we finally did it. That was high quality. But, but yes, um, so if you think about it, if it's going to be drier, you are going to tend to see a, a higher likelihood of, of fire. So in addition to it's dry and you have more fire, they're actually decreasing levels of CO2. So the C so we have less CO2 in the atmosphere. So you need to be more efficient at you need to be more efficient at photosynthesis because you have less CO2 available from, from the atmosphere. So you it's drier. You're getting burned up. You have less <laughs> CO2. And in addition, you tend to see this increase of seasonality. So um, seasonality is basically what it sounds like. You have more distinct seasons. So like tropical environments, if you think about San Diego, 
San Diego has no seasons. It is just yeah, beautiful is. all year round. <laughs> but if you think about like a temperate region, you're going to have, you have four distinct seasons. It is winter, it is spring, it is summer, it is fall. So having this increase of seasonality, that's going to lead to, you're going to have seasonal differences in temperature, seasonal differences in precipitation. So you need something that is, can deal with all of these changes. And like I said before, you have the land bridges are disappearing. You have an increase in temperature in the Middle Miocene, the Middle Miocene climatic optimum. So we have this this temporary increase in temperature that's uh, in some places coincides with the spread of these C4 grasslands, not everywhere, but in many places. So there's just bonkers stuff going on in terms of the climate the world is changing and the plants are just like i don't know what to do with this and the grasses are like this is my moment <laughs> finally <laughs> finally what's so what one of the things that's really fascinating to me about plants is when pla you know because because we talk about you know it's oh well the 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 dinosaurs radiated in the early mesozoic and they changed ecosystems right when animal groups radiate, when new groups rise to dominance, they change ecosystems drastically. When new groups of plants rise to dominance, they create new biomes and they yes. change the <laughs> they whole bring it with them. set. Like the, they terraform the world yes. and change they, everything. They are often the ecosystems we talk about animals changing. Exactly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they set the stage. So when grasslands start to spread in, in the early Neogene, as we start to see the spread of grasslands, it's an overhaul of, uh, of ecosystems all over the planet. Yes. So before the Neogene, there were no grasslands. And all of, all of a sudden, you have massive grasslands. They're everywhere. They went from being present on no continents to all continents. And the other thing about it is I, I thought you were going to touch on it. You talk about plants moving. Plants can't move. <laughs> like, that's the difference. <laughs> so if you think it, it makes perfect sense to think about animal groups dispersing because they have legs or they slither or something. They can <laughs> locomote. They move. So it makes perfect sense to think about them radiating. But it's that's not the case for plants. So they, it's a... It's a harder process. And in many ways, it's uh, they're more limited. So the reason plants are often used to study paleoclimate um, is because unlike an animal, particularly large animals, so like if an elephant or a deer or a bison or whatever doesn't like the climate that's going on where it lives, it leaves. Mm -hmm. It can just go someplace else. <laughs> plants have to adapt or die. Because it's not like they can, like, ent away. They're not just going to walk away. <laughs> They're stuck there. Which means that if you have plants in a location, you can have a pretty good idea of what the climate is like. Because if that plant made it, it can't be too bad, right? Right. So, right. And, and, and you're right. I, I love the idea of plants terraforming and like yes they yeah. make the biomes that the, the the animals are just borrowing the planet like it's really the the, the plants that's there's a reason we call it a green planet exactly <laughs> it is interesting from the note of plants uh spreading that you said they can't move they have to they, when they spread they have to grow through the areas they're moving through like so it it leaves a they leave a path but then also they were it would be much easier for them to end up being trapped somewhere 
you know, isolated and have no way to, you know, one, if they get separated on a piece of land that breaks off, there's no way for them to easily move across and they can't actively choose to do it like an animal could go, well, make the swim. Let's see. My favorite example of that is in Texas, there is a place called Lost Maples State Park. So during the Pleistocene, you know, it was a terrible place to be for many animal, plants and animals. <laughs> so you have this, the biomes, these habitats that used to be much further north have moved south um, during the Pleistocene. And then as the glaciers recede and the temperatures increases, these habitats move back north where they used to be. And there are plants and animals that got stuck. So when we were in Tennessee, <laughs> there was a species of owl. Uh, there was a pocket of northern saw wet owls in the middle of southern saw wet owls range because they got stuck to, stuck on a mountaintop and couldn't leave. And those lost maples that I talked about, there's just this small stand of maples that got stuck in a canyon in Texas. And they can't leave because, like, they're, the environment outside of this secluded canyon is not suitable for these maples to survive. <laughs> um, but they got stuck there. And exactly, that's exactly it. Like, plants can't, like, oh, you know, we just, just got to get through the desert and then there will be grass on the other side. Grass, see? There'll be mm -hmm. food on the other side. <laughs> no, plants are stuck. <laughs> yeah, it's the only option you have as a plant is, all right, start having your seeds grow that direction <laughs> start casting them south <laughs> and hopefully in generations to come they will get there generations exactly exactly so yeah it's, it's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see yeah, yeah. exactly so all of this change all of this dramatic shit right the world the world is changing in a very real way one of the most fascinating aspects of this, if you're the kind of person that is animal-centric, <laughs> like some people are, is that this isn't happening. Grass does not exist in isolation. When the grasslands rise, we see enormous shifts in animal life on the planet. Tell us a little bit about what, what grasslands did to the animals. Oh, yes. So there are two groups that really were dramatically impacted by the spread of grasslands um grazers so you know animals that are grazing on these grasslands and humans so we are these are the two groups that really changed it changed the course of their of their evolution so we'll start off talking about grazers this is tied into as most people know you can have a pretty good idea of what an animal eats based on its teeth. Right. If it has pointy teeth, it is eating meat. If it has grindy teeth, it is not. <laughs> it's eating some something else. So before the Middle Miocene, so before we see the spread of grasslands, most herbivores, most large herbivores, tended to be browsers. So browsers, they can eat a variety of plant material, um, and they tend to have low crown teeth. So low crown teeth means that there isn't, you know, it's like kind of like our teeth. There's just not a lot going on above the root. There's not a lot sticking out. And that suggests that the food wasn't too rough on your teeth. If you have a really rough diet, it's going to mess up your teeth. So if you have, if you're eating like, you know, fruits and things like that, you're not going to have, you're not going to need as much tooth to wear through. 
During the middle Miocene, we see an increase in grazers with high crown teeth. So this is called hypsodonty. So hypsodont teeth tend to have really tall crowns. If you've ever seen a horse tooth, yep. those mm-hmm. they, there's just so much tooth there. Yeah, there's a little bit of root and then just this like skyscraper of tooth. Yeah. And enough to keep it in the mouth. <laughs> and then yes. the rest is just <laughs> there to be worn away. And so we talked about this before. So grazers eat grass, which is full of phytoliths, that plant sand. And it is just wearing down their teeth, um, which is part of the reason we we think that there's this relationship between these high crown teeth and grazing. If you are going to be wearing down your teeth, then you, you, you're going to have more teeth. Because I mean, for them, it's effectively like eating sandpaper. It is literally sandpaper. Yeah. And in, in addition, so not only are they eating this plant sand in, that is embedded in the leaves, but they're also eating actual sand. <laughs> because if you think <laughs> about they're, they're, instead of instead of browsing, which tends to be up higher, you're eating things off of trees, mostly. Grazing is literally eating things off the ground. So in addition to the dirt that's coming in from the plant itself, that that silica, that fight those phytoliths, you're probably eating actual dirt. So that's also going to wear down your teeth. Um, <laughs> I like to imagine a whole herd of horses just walking through the the, the plains just going, five second rule. <laughs> yep, that's exactly what I thought. Five this second rule. This is the ultimate five second rule. <laughs> exactly. By the way, very quick side note, the five second rule has, I believe, been empirically tested and there's no such thing. Well, yeah, it's, that's the anyway. Anyway. You, just, anyway. you just ruined my day. I need to go, check, go to the doctor now. <laughs> you should have told me that this morning. Make so what about choice. humans? So, so we see lots more grazers as grasslands show up. So humans also have been... Our trajectory has been shaped by grasslands. The um, the jury is still out on the relationship between uh, grazers and grasslands, and the jury is definitely still out when it comes to the relationship between early humans <laughs> and grasslands. As I was looking through the literature for this, it's so funny because I swear every other paper I read was like, and this means that this was definitely true. The other one's like, this means it was definitely not true. It's like, you know, <laughs> we'll see. So you've probably heard a story that you know humans we originated in africa and we we started off in the trees and then we came down for the trees and made our way through the grasslands and all of these things are because we we were, were bipedal because of grasslands and things yeah, like that yeah. and that is probably partially true it's like grasslands definitely have an impact on what happened in the trajectory of our of our early evolution but it's probably not as straightforward as we were went from trees to grasslands to people there's that we woke up one day and there was suddenly carpeting everywhere and we went oh <laughs> let's, let's try that exactly i could golf on this <laughs> exactly so not quite so in africa the spread of c4 grasslands uh, occurred during the late miocene And for much of the Neogene, so in the Miocene and in the Pliocene, the climate is very variable. So you might, if you were in a time machine and you were sitting in one spot in, let's say, Kenya, you're sitting in one spot in Kenya throughout the Neogene, around you, it it might change from grassland to woodland to 
wetland to, you know, it, it's going to be very variable. So you're not going to see, it, it's not like East Africa turned into a grassland and then stayed a grassland. That's not exactly what happened. Isn't that, I mean, because even with modern grass, you know, savannas and grasslands, isn't that kind of the whole thing with animals like elephants that are clearing forests that spread the grassland, but then it would be like, it, it, it it's not a stationary thing it's it's going to be changing its borders and stuff yeah exactly so like the edges are going to be changing like you know the the middle might stay grassland throughout extended a period of time but the edge between like forest and woodland and grassland is going to be is going to be shifting exactly if you have a slight change in water regime if it's wetter now or drier now you're going to see different plants if it's you know cooler now or or warmer now you're going to see a different composition of plants so throughout most of the Neogene, the, the climate is super variable. And also keep in mind, East Africa is literally ripping apart at this time. So you have that, <laughs> that rift valley is literally rifting apart. So you have volcanism and like the land is moving in addition to this variable, this variable climate. So there's just a lot going on in <laughs> Africa, particularly East Africa at this time. Like I said, during the Miocene, uh, the landscape was a mosaic. So you had closed canopy, which means that the trees, basically, uh, the canopy is so dense that you can't necessarily see the sky. So a closed canopy means that if you're in a, if a dense woodland, you look up, you cannot see the sun, you cannot see the sky. Uh, an open canopy, canopy would be if you could look up and, and see the sky. So you're seeing a combination of closed canopy and open canopy woodland and grassland throughout time. And during the Pliocene and Pleistocene, so from about 3.5 million years on, we tend, you do see a dominance of grasslands, but there's still, so even though the grasslands aren't really changing, the animals that are living in the grasslands are changing. So you're not seeing a floral turnover, you're seeing a faunal turnover. So the things okay. that are living there are changing, which basically is saying that there were grasslands and they definitely had an impact on our early evolution, but so did the woodlands. So it's this combination of mosaic environment that our ability to go between and kind of go back and forth was a bigger advantage that we weren't basically kicked out like, oh, our environment is gone. Like, no, no, we're just going to suck it up and we'll adapt to this one too. And so that adaptability to this variable climate is really what solidified our place on the planet. So even though the, like, the forests were important, but so were the grasslands. So it's a little, little bit of both. I like that clarification because you do hear the whole thing that we, we came out of the trees and stood up in the grass very often. And it, it makes such a... A clean, neat picture. And it makes a lot of intuitive sense. Yes. So if you think about, so the, a lot of the, um, a lot of the traits that separate us from other primates. Um, so the fact that we are, we are obligate bipeds. We are bipedal. We stand on two legs all the time. The thought is that, oh yes, that way we can see over the grasses. Um, and then the fact that we only have hair on the top of our head. Like, oh, if the sun is beating down on the top of our head, we don't need it in the rest. Um, and that way we can sweat in the breeze. Some of this might be true. Some of it might be just so stories to kind of explain, um, that, you know, try to tie it into the grasslands. But 
the grasslands are definitely important, especially when we became more human. But at the in the beginning, it that wasn't the you know. And today there are grasslands, and today I'm a human. Yeah, well, it's right. and it also makes intuitive sense, or at least that there's references that you can your brain can immediately jump to because you know, we're we're great stamina walkers, and there are people nowadays who are thriving in you know there are communities communities that are still able to survive in the savannas and it, it's very easy to kind of draw a line it's like oh yeah i mean look we probably were doing a lot of what they're doing still it still works so and so it, it's a very easy line to draw but it's it's changes once you realize that the plants weren't just and now it's grass all the time every day exactly and it's a, that it, that goes along with we also just don't know how to imagine a world without grass. Yeah. And so we're so used to, this is what the world is like now. It's so easy to try to apply that to the past. And sometimes it works, but not always. Even even though, you know, broadly speaking, things basically throughout time, the same processes have been at work the whole time, but the little details have changed. So... A lot of the, sh- the differences that we see between the Paleogene before 30 to 40 million years ago and the Neogene since then are linked to the, this change in plant regime. We see lots of grasslands like we discussed, the rise of grazers. Grasslands obviously had a huge impact on ape evolution, including ourselves. Also, uh, we should point out that when you're changing some animals, you also end up changing the other animals. We actually, we pointed this out uh, very briefly, passing through in episode three, but as grasslands spread through the Neogene, you also see the spread of a lot of small mammals like rodents, and you see a huge shift in snake ecosystems. Yeah. Modern groups of snakes spread along with these, like the colubrids and the vipers seem to have diversified and spread along with the spread of grasslands because possibly there were lots of tasty little critters taking advantage of the new plant ecosystems. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because grasses, if you've ever been in a tall grass prairie, like I am not particularly tall, so they tower above me. But there are grasses, there are grasses in India called elephant grass that are elephant height. So yeah. it's really easy to see how, like, if you are a small mammal, oh yeah, you're gonna do great in the grass. Nothing's gonna find you. It's a great place to live. Yeah, yeah. It's cool that a a single type of plant, you know, such as grasses, and a Habitats such as grasslands can be so uniquely and perfectly set for large animals to utilize it. Giant grazers eating this abundance of food, but then also small animals to now live in this this shorter but very widespread effective forest. Like to them, that's that's the tropical rainforest with <laughs> it, things yes. towering above them, and they can climb up and down it, and you know burrow beneath it. And so you have small animals and lots of insects, you know, thriving within the grass while big animals tromp around it above. And it's 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 got two layers that are very very separate but very equally diverse, which is cool. And that that brings us straight up to the present day. That this is still the world we live in today, a world dominated by grasses in the savanna and on our lawns. 
and even during um the pleistocene so you have these mammoth steps so during the pleistocene during the last ice age you you still see this uh it this spread of 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 grasses so even even trucking on through to the pleistocene up until today you're right they're everywhere love those grasses (laughs) they feed me so i like that too yes yes So that has been a wonderful tour, a very quick, as always, tour through the evolutionary history of grass, the the idea of grass uh, over time. But if we could, the last little bit of this episode, uh, we would love to hear about your research, Allie. So what are what are you what are you studying? So that really ties really nicely into what I do. So, like I said, I am a botanist and a paleobotanist, and so basically, I am studying modern botany so that I can apply it to fossils. So I am, specifically, I am working in Kenya uh, during the early Miocene, so around 20 million years ago. And I am interested in looking how the paleo environment, the paleoecology, and the paleoclimate impacted early hominid uh, evolution. So what I was saying right there, um, I'm interested in working in ecosystems that have Miocene apes. So we're not humans yet. We're hominids, not hominins. I don't remember. Yeah. Group. Yes. <laughs> so Ethan can can uh, correct me. But, uh... we, we spent we did the length of two full episodes on hominids in episode 18. So go check that out, people, if you want. Those. Yep. yep. Yes. <laughs> those exactly. were sorted out. Hominin and hominid. So they're homin... I don't remember. Anyway, um, so basically, I like to say when I am talking to vertebrate paleontologists that I am the context. Paleobotany (laughs) is the context that makes vertebrate paleontology make sense. Because like you said, um, you, you can't really have animals without these plants. So even though I, it makes me sad, I am the backdrop behind all of these animals. So without understanding what's going on with the plants, you can't really fully appreciate what's going on with the animals. So that's what I'm there for. I am working on a site in Kenya. It's um, on Rasinga Island in eastern Kenya in Lake Victoria. I'm actually leaving imminently to go into the field (laughs) uh, to do some field work. As of this recording, you are heading off to Kenya in about three weeks? A little over three weeks, so I have a lot of planning ahead of me. What are you going to be doing in Kenya? So my research is... I do a lot of museum work in addition to field work. So in Kenya, I will be spending most of my time working in a museum, looking at previously collected plant fossils, and I will be photographing them so that I can measure them. And then I'll be in the field for a few weeks collecting more of my own fossils. So the the research that I do is I use the size and shape of leaves to determine paleoclimate. So specifically if you will imagine with me, if you will. So in general, the larger the leaves, the wetter the environment. And in general, uh, the toothier the leaves, the colder the environment. So if you think about like Canada, they have the Canadian flag has a maple leaf on it. It's super toothy. And if you think about um, in colder regions, particularly in like North America, um, you have oaks that tend to have a lot of teeth. But if you come down to Texas or if you go to Louisiana or other parts of the South, oak trees tend to have smooth margins. 
So in general, when it's colder, you tend to have lots of teeth. Where it's warmer, you tend to have no teeth at all. So if you go to a tropical rainforest, the leaves have no teeth, in, mostly. Um, and then also, if you, going back to a tropical rainforest, leaves, like I mentioned at the very beginning, talking about photosynthesis, if it's really uh, dry, plants have to worry about losing water through their leaves. So they tend to make them very small. In fact, cactus leaves are their needles. Those are their leaves. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. it is so dry that they have reduced them into needles. <laughs> it's, they, they've gone flat world. Exactly. It's just, it's become a point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Whereas in the tropics, you will have leaves that are you know six feet long. So by looking at the size and the shape of the leaves, you can get a pretty good idea of the temperature and precipitation. So I... Um, and many, many, many undergraduates, we photograph the leaves and then we measure, measure the size and shape of them so that we can get a pretty good idea of the temperature and precipitation from that time in that place. Unfortunately, most of the models that we have to do that are based on data from primarily temperate regions and primarily in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And that part of text or excuse me that part of africa is not northern hemisphere or temperate there's actually no data at all um, from africa in any of these in the model that we're using so another part of my research is to photograph modern leaves from across tropical africa so that i, I can get an idea of what um the range of size and shape is that we see in africa today so that we can add that to the model so that we can because there's no point in using a model in Africa that doesn't have any data from Africa. It's not, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out, bad idea. So basically I have to revamp this model so that I can then apply it to this, this fossil site. That's very cool. So you're, you're sort of pioneering this, this, this method of looking at leaves from this part of the world. Exactly. There is very little work that's been done uh, looking at modern leaves from Africa. There's been some work, but in general, it hasn't really been, you know, fully studied. So my advisor keeps telling me, even one point is better than we are right now. <laughs> I, because I, I have a lot of data, um, because I, I have been working on this for three years now. So I have literally thousands of photographs of leaves. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of leaves. It's a lot of leaves. That's really, it's, it's actually really surprising to me to hear of scenarios where we don't know a lot about the plants, but which are very popular topics to study in animal evolution. Because like you said before, yes, we can study lots of how animals are changing over time, but it doesn't really make, like, without that background, how, you know, understanding it is very, very difficult to do. So you think we would need to have the, an understanding of what the plants were. Like you can't study an elephant in the absence of the savanna or the forest yeah. where the elephant lives. Exactly, exactly. That's that's why this is, it's very frustrating because, for example, last summer I was in Kenya and I was the only paleobotanist at the museum at that time. There were many archaeologists, there were anthropologists, there were vertebrate paleontologists. So they, they had the rest of, you know, life <laughs> pretty covered. <laughs> but they're really, when I when I went to the collections, the, the collections manager 
was telling me that no one had looked at the fossils in like literally years it had been yeah so the i i really want to be the token paleobotanist for many many people (laughs) like (laughs) i will look at the plants for you um because yeah it is the problem or not a problem but a i guess it's, it's very prevalent in paleontology that the lens that you know is how you're looking at your fossils so if yes. you, as a vertebrate paleontologist, you look at, if I look at, you know, a, a snake fossil or, you know, a, a, an alligator fossil, I will recognize it as a fossil, probably, <laughs> but that's, that's about it. And the same thing, if you were to see a plant fossil, you might recognize it as a plant fossil, but you would, it would, you know, you would say, oh, I found a plant fossil or I found some plant, but you, you wouldn't really go any further into it. And that's why it's really important to have multiple ways of looking at the same data. It's, it's amazing the things that when you, you know, go data mining, you'll find a single line in a paper and go back and realize, why didn't they do anything with this? Because the person who collected it had no idea what it was. Like, this seems important yeah. and brought it back. And that's, that's why it's, I think it's, Particularly in vertebrate paleontology, you you really do need to have a plant lens. There aren't always plant fossils. It's just how it works. Um, because the environment that best preserves plants is not the environment that best prefer- preserves vertebrates. So you might not have both. But it's still a really good idea to have that lens there so that you're not missing out on vital information. You know, we, we can't, plants like literally change the world. They are the reason the world is how it is today. So without understanding what's going on with the plant community, we really don't know what's going on. So without that full picture, we're, we're not being completely true. Uh, I'm glad you used the word picture because that, that's the, the metaphor that's been in my head is looking at just the animals in an ecosystem, is literally looking at only half the picture of the ecosystem. And and because of that, much like our habit of just lumping you know, or just assuming that grasses, you know, the the plant ecosystems we have today are what has always been, it's the same thing happens that the reason dinosaurs get drawn in grasslands is that you have your animals and then just a green backdrop. Yes. That's just generic. It's really exciting when paleo artists do talk to paleobotanists. It's, oh, it's very exciting. Um, there was a master's thesis that from this year, from Middle Tennessee, and it was a fine arts master's. This woman did a reconstruction of the Gray Fossil Site using that she went to gray and she talked to to wally and everybody and figured out what kind of fossils do we have plants and animals and everything and unfortunately the thesis did not include the actual picture so i would love to see it because (laughs) that's the it's i love seeing um reconstructions that are very true to not just the animals but also to the plants because it's so easy to just kind of throw away the plants like oh I was listening to a book about dinosaurs very recently, an audiobook, and at the end they're talking about, oh, in the, in the Paleocene, there were X, Y, and Z plants in ginkgo. There were no ginkgo, but because, oh, that's a fossil plant, it was just included. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's very, that is very frustrating. People don't really pay attention to plant, modern plants, and they, they don't really pay, pay attention to fossil plants, and both of 
both of those things are really important. They were, they're important now, they're important then, and it's, it's, it's just too easy to ignore them. I am the paleolorax. I speak for the trees. Yes. <laughs> well, the, the overlooking of plants, to me, it very much makes me think of, like, when you watch older movies, especially, like, period piece movies that are supposed to be taking place at a certain time, or even if it's just they visit a certain country, and they get something obviously wrong, like, anyone from that country would, you know, notices it, or anyone who's been to that country or just has a passing knowledge often can be like, that they don't do that there. That's <laughs> that's something that, you know, or, I mean, it's the same thing as when they, they go to someplace foreign and they just have a British accent because it <laughs> sounds fancy and foreign, and that's not what they talk or about. Or like any medieval show. Yeah. Anytime yeah. you're in medieval times or the past... People have that same British accent. Well, it it, it gives me it makes me laugh every time when there's a, a Greek or Roman and they're just all British. It's like that, you know, that's still a place, right? Like, because <laughs> it but it shapes people's perception through those little mistakes. Well, and it's it's funny. This isn't necessarily a mistake, but when I watch the Lord of the Rings movies. I am very aware of the fact that it's filmed in New Zealand because that's one of the few places in the world that has tree ferns. So I'm looking at the plants. I'm like, oh, obviously you're in New Zealand. Like there's yeah. nowhere else that has that. And it's, just, it's the same sort of thing. It's like I, because I'm aware of the background, it's very clear to me, you know, where this is set. That's like when they use animal noises for some monster and he comes in. I'm like, oh, an elephant. <laughs> that was an elephant. It's always a, that was an elephant. It's always a red tailed hawk. It's always a red tailed hawk. Yeah. 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 Well, it's really interesting. You know, it, it, it's a good point to make that plants do end up being overshadowed both in modern studies and, and past studies. And we on the Common Descent podcast are certainly guilty of overlooking the plant parts of, of past and present ecosystems. And it's, you know, as with many people, it's because we don't know very much about it. And so it, it's mm -hmm. a little harder for us to discuss. And we've said this in, in episodes in the past, that if we were ever going to talk about the terrifying subject of plants, we would have to bring on someone who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> so, Allie, thank you so much for being our first plant representative on the Common Descent podcast. I am so happy that you let me talk about plants for this long. <laughs> this has been really cool. We have both learned a, a ton of stuff. Hopefully our listeners have learned a ton of stuff as well. And, and and hopefully we will do some more plant talk at some point in the future on the podcast. There are lots of other types of plants to discuss. We have literally only talked about one family of plants. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, and we man, barely talked that, about that it. That doesn't fill our quota. Yeah, this is, <laughs> no. This is, this is no. Another, another 40 Check. episodes. We'll talk about trees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll cover uh, so, somewhere in between there. We'll do one microbe. <laughs> <laughs> Add to, episode 100. We'll and do, like, bacteria. amoebas. Yes. And moving on. <laughs> We'll mention amoebas once every 50 episodes. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, thank you for listening. If there's more you want to hear about from the history of plants, the diversity of plants, there's lots more out there to talk about. Let us know uh, and we will see if we can find someone to talk about it. It might even be Allie again. Because we only we only know so many paleobotanists. We know they're out there. <laughs> There's only so many of us. In the meantime, 
Thank you for listening. We will have, as always, a blog post that goes up, and we'll have all sorts of cool links and pictures to teach you more about grasses. If there's more you want to hear about plants or any other subject you want to hear us talk about on the podcast, we are always open to suggestions and requests and recommendations. Contact us on our various social media places. You can hear those in the outro message. We release episodes every fortnight, so stay tuned two weeks from now for another episode of the Common Descent Podcast on whatever topic we've chosen for then. You've chosen, dear listeners, for then. And we will see you then. The last thing to say, I guess, is once more, one more time, everybody all together in your cars, wherever you are out there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Allie. This has been a ton of fun. Indeed. Thank you. And best of luck on your preparing for your trip across the world. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Yeah, in Africa. <laughs> it's going to be great. Can you believe it? <laughs> oh. That's, that's where we cut we the We were doing episode. so well. That's where we cut the episode. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Play the outro music. Play it now. <laughs> Make it go. <laughs> I've peaked. <laughs> that's, that's as good as it gets. That's it. That's all she wrote. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.